Jill Fritz with the Humane Society of the United States, and you're listening to KBOO Portland. From applicant tracking systems to chatbots to facial recognition, artificial intelligence is transforming our world for the better and also for the worse. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. for The Imaginary Possible, a show that looks at the captivating potentials and the troubling realities of artificial intelligence today. Only on KBOO Community Radio, KBOO 90.7 FM in Portland. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. This month's Finance Committee meeting will be held on Thursday, December 14th at 5.30 p.m. The meeting will be held online through a public video conference. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting can be found on our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! You're listening to KBOO 90.7 FM. To you, the 9 to fiver, just making your way home. To you, the all-night driver, out in your cab alone. To you, waiting for lunch break, as the minutes drag so slow. Take courage, turn the volume up, it's Labor Radio. Good evening and welcome to Labor Radio, of the working class, by the working class, for the working class. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here with co-host Rachel Haynes. Hey, Rachel. Hello. We are broadcasting around the world from Portland, Oregon. Both of us are public school teachers. We host every second Monday of the month, where we typically interview educators and talk about what's going on in their schools and in their unions. And joining us today, we have Mary Najimi. Did I pronounce that cor- correctly? You did indeed. Hello from Boston, Great. Massachusetts. <laughs> Hi, Mary. Thanks so much. And we also have Aaron Phillips. Greetings. Thanks for having me from uh, Amarillo, Texas. Yeah, great to have you both. So why don't you start out just by um, telling us a little bit about what your role is as an educator, uh, what level you work at, what what roles you have in your union. So I am a 30-plus year veteran educator. I've taught elementary school my entire life uh, from the grades I've taught have been kindergarten all the way up to third grade. Uh, You know, I got into education because my experience as an Arab American in public education was one of alienation and marginalization from the curriculum. And there was no such thing as culturally relevant teaching, which is what education is starting to focus on now. Um, And so through my years as an educator, I developed an anti-racist pedagogy and really looked at how do I transform my own curriculum to be anti-colonialist, anti-racist, culturally relevant. I did that for 30 years. uh, And then I got involved in my local union because I was starting to feel that 
the local union was making too many concessions to our administration around hard fought and won contract issues. Ultimately, I became the president and started realizing that our state union, the Massachusetts Teachers Association, was doing the same thing right around uh, education reform and high stakes testing. They were aligning themselves with the Democratic Party and making concessions. And so all of that important anti-racist teaching started to be stifled. Uh, and I was just talking to rank and file members across Massachusetts and people were feeling the same frustration. So I was one of the founding members of a caucus called EDU, Educa Educators for a Democratic Union. And ultimately, we ran a candidate to take, to take the presidency of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, the MTA. Uh, she became my predecessor, Barbara Mataloni. And then after Barbara's term was up, um, I ran with another caucus member and we won. And we really started setting anti-racist uh, social justice values and we aspire to be an anti-racist union. I'm now actually back in the classroom. Uh, I'm a STEM educator. I'm running engineering projects with elementary school kids and it's really just pure joy of teaching. Great, and how about you, Aaron? Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, currently a fifth grade science teacher uh, here in Amarillo, Texas. I'm in my 16th year in my school district. Um, I'm also the local president, um, currently in my fourth term, uh, came into that role um, in 2017. And then I'm also in my second term as an NEA um, board member. I'm a director with the, the NEA board of directors. Um, and I, I started that role in 2020. And um, really my my elevation into union leadership began with with seeing those educators who were doing anti-racist work, social justice work. And that's what drew me into the work of the union. And, and the deeper I've gone in, the more um, I see we need to uplift that work in many places. Um, and for the last two years, I've really focused on grassroots efforts within the union and formed a progressive caucus here within Texas um, to push our union to um, really um, act on the values we have on paper. Great. All right. Well, we've invited you on our show to talk about what's happening in Palestine, what's happening here in the U.S. and all over the world in response to that and particularly the important role of unions. And as we're recording, I believe the most current numbers we have are over 16,000 Palestinian civilians that have been killed, although the number will probably be higher because of, unfortunately, because of how many bodies are just buried under rubble. Um, and the majority of those are women and children. Uh, this was preceded by an attack from Hamas fighters that killed over 1,200 Israelis, many of them civilians as well. Uh, but while the extreme uptick in ethnic cleansing and genocide certainly resulted from the October 7th attack, it's important to acknowledge that Palestinian people have been living in apartheid conditions for generations. Uh, when did you all get involved in the fight for Palestinian human rights and what motivated you to take that first step? 
Yeah, Stephen, I appreciate that you noted the history is actually beyond October 7th. This actually started 75 years ago. Uh, I can say, you know, in 1948, the state of of Israel was built on top of 78% of Palestine through violence, terrorism, forced displacement, ethnic cleansing. Um, So this did not start October 7th, and Hamas is not the first perpetrator. I And the reason why I start with that is because that's my history. That's my story. I grew up in a household where my father was a young man during the time that Ramal Abdel Nasser was the president of Egypt. And there was this idea in our household that we have to build pan-Arabism. Um, and so the discourse in the 70s and 80s that was part of our family and part of my culture. Now I'm Lebanese, not Palestinian, but I've always been in solidarity with the Palestinians because it's what I grew up with. The discourse was was self-determination, autonomy, liberation. And it was also a moment in the world where the world was on fire with liberation struggles. And there was international solidarity across Africa and the Middle East and Latin America. Um, I didn't become active on the issue of Palestine until the 80s, actually until the 90s, because back then in the 80s when I was in college, there was no Students for Justice in Palestine. I only became active after I had a chance to reconnect with an elder in our uh, Arab community who started some important civil rights institutions, Arab American institutions in the United States. And so it was around the 90s, late 90s, as Oslo was coming to a head. And just for your audience's sake, Oslo was never intended to create two states. It changed the discourse from liberation to two states and to peace. But Oslo was designed to uh, deepen the apartheid structure that exists now. So I got involved actively in the late 90s when there was another Palestinian youth movement rising at the time on the heels of the failure of Oslo. Great. And you, Aaron? Um, For me, um, my awareness and in my understanding and in my ability to be active on the issues much more recent um you know as as a person who's um been able to enjoy a privileged life in this nation um it it didn't affect me and so um until i understood i had a responsibility to um work against injustice and actively work against injustice everywhere, um, I I didn't quite understand the impact um, that it actually did have on me. That that as an extension of um, the settler colonial system, the the, the British and, and the United States had set up, um, it it is an extension of the society we built that oppresses people. Um, I think a real turning point for me would have been during 2020 during. Um, really the the catalyst of the Black Lives Matter movement and with the murder of George Floyd, George, George Floyd and understanding that um, people all over the world were in solidarity with um, pe- 
black people in the United States and the oppression that that they have faced historically here for hundreds of years. And the more I started to look into those stories and to see why people were in solidarity um, with people in the United States, I saw that not only was it about what's happening here, but so much of what happens here has been exported everywhere else. And it really strengthened my resolve to be a voice for justice. Um, my personal existence is a result of colonialism and kind of reckoning with that personal family history um, it, and, and understanding that I, I don't want to take privileges from the system. I have a responsibility to deconstruct the system. And so that's where in the last three years, I've um, felt an obligation to become more educated about what Palestinian people face, to speak up um, and to be in solidarity with them as they seek liberation. Um, the call for a long-term ceasefire has been a rallying cry for millions of people. Why do you feel unions uh, should play a role in calling for this? Rachel, it's interesting. Unions have actually, until October 7th, historically taken a side with Israel. Uh, so it's a tremendous sea change that unions are siding with the liberation of Palestine. I think, you know, we hear members say we shouldn't get involved. It's an international issue. We don't, it's a political issue without really actually thinking that union work is fundamentally political. Fighting for the rights of workers is an, is a political act. You know, for us, we're union educators in the field of education. Fighting for school funding is political. Fighting for, you know, uh, uh, get to get rid of disparate treatment of our black and brown students in schools. It's inherently political. So unions always get involved in politics. I also feel like we can't say it's an international issue. This is an issue that is streaming into our lives every day. Our students are making it their issue and they're walking out on the streets. Our educators who are union educators are having their academic freedom suppressed. Those are union issues, protecting our, our educators, protecting our students. Our college professors, who we also represent, are being retaliated against, as well as their university students who are sitting in and standing out. So those are examples of reasons. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, war is really bad for all workers around the world. Um, I actually found out recently that the Massachusetts Teachers Association uh, took a stand against apartheid in South Africa and came across a letter from Nelson Mandela that he wrote to the MTA telling us how important a position it was that we took. I, I think one other element of this is um, as we see a generational shift um, within the unions and and a more educated um, union member about the way these systems work and oppress us, um, the policing tactics used in Israel are exported here to the United States. Um, our tax dollars, instead of being used to uplift our schools that have um, 
extreme class sizes and underpaid staff, those dollars are instead being used to make weapons to kill children. And and so everything is interconnected whenever our government is corrupt and is focusing on um, maintaining powers of, of uh, or systems of oppression, maintaining systems that will enrich a few at the expense of all of us. And, and I think it goes back to, to the traditional saying, an injury to one is an injury to all. And people in Palestine, workers, educators in Palestine, the children of Palestine are having their lives ripped apart. And that, that hurts all of us, that impacts all of us. <clears throat> so a ceasefire is really just a bare minimum for what needs to happen in Palestine. And many unions, particularly at the national level, are reluctant to even call for that. What are other things um, that unions should be calling for to address the struggle of the Palestinian people beyond a ceasefire? Yeah, you're right, Rachel. The ceasefire is the bare minimum. We we hear a lot of people talking about peace. You cannot get to peace until the Palestinians get to liberation. And what the Palestinians are calling for is liberation, ending the occupation, taking down the structures of apartheid. And then we can get to what is a, a what does a situation of justice and peace actually look like for two people sharing one piece of land. I think labor unions have to take their lead from what the Palestinians are calling for. Uh, but specifically, labor unions have to pressure all the the rank and file has to continue to put upward pressure on all of our electeds at the city level, at the state level, at the federal level, and at the presidency. Um, you know, Aaron said it well, the money is going towards war when all of our schools are crippled and deprived. What If you're not in an education union, other unions are fighting just for livable wages and universal health care. So immediately we have to stop the, we have to call for ceasefire. We have to call for no more funding to Israel, conditional or not, just no more funding. Um, and then an insistence to remove the occupation. I think in our instance as well, uh, the educator unions have to start doing community education, rank and file education, teach-ins with our students and so on. I would, I would really echo that the educational piece because uh, especially here in my community, a lot of the pushback I get is that this is too complicated of an issue that uh, there's a lot of uh, misinformation and propaganda that's been used to where when people are able to actually dig into the history, what has happened, it, it's not complicated. You have an oppressive government committing ethnic cleansing and genocide and it has to stop. And I think, um, you know, especially as an education union where we talk about, we must preserve the right to teach truth about history. That includes Palestinian history. And it's not, um, you know, we're not in a situation where we can allow the propaganda to happen as a union, we have to speak up for what is truthful and that that's the only way we're going to be able to get to justice. 
and, and get past a lot of the propaganda that's been used to um, justify the genocide that's happening. Well, Aaron, I just say it's emotional, not complicated, right? Mm-hmm. It's high emotions, but it's not complicated. Well, yeah. can I just ask a follow-up? I know I'm stealing a little bit of Stephen's time here, but um, I think that, you know, the this issue, it's like you, you talked about a sea change, that it is different now, um, and that there is so much more support uh, for Palestinian liberation. Um, but there is the very real... Uh, uh, you know, consequences for people who speak out. It is a kind of new McCarthyism um, where people are losing their jobs or being, you know, uh, placed in dangerous situations on social media or whatever for speaking um, for the, you know, just the basic human rights of a people. And so I think that is also a huge um like task to do as a union to be able to create the um, environment where people can discuss this um, freely without fear of um, sort of political persecution for right right unions have always done political education this can be considered political education and it does matter because it it is about the protections of the workers who are speaking and acting and we do have to build solidarity, like like Aaron said earlier, an injury to one is an injury to all. When Palestinians are calling for liberation, they're not calling for that at the expense of the lives of Israelis and American Jews. Our, our humanity is inextricably linked and our liberation is inextricably linked. So we have to be able to be in solidarity with each other. And Aaron started talking about propaganda it it is all propaganda people have have been uh led to believe that the call the river to the sea means that palestinians want to push jews into the sea when actually what it has always meant was there are palestinians who are living in all areas between the mediterranean sea and the jordan river they are still there today in different areas with different circumstances, but none of them have rights. So when Palestinians call for the river to the sea, what they're talking about is we want to be able to live freely with our Jewish neighbors in all of the land between the river and the sea. So we have to also educate our rank and file members on what is propaganda and what is not propaganda. You mean, wait, isn't it anti-Semitic to criticize the Israeli government and Zionism? Aaron, would you like to start that one and I'll follow? (laughs) Um, Well, I think, uh, unfortunately, in the United States, we're getting to a legal point where the First Amendment's not going to mean much when you're speaking for the liberation of people. Um, but but I, I think that's one of the, the biggest fallacies that I've, I've faced when I've talked to people about this, at least initially. Um, when they are open to dialogue, and I share with them that it's actually many Jewish educators, Jewish community members, Jewish religious leaders that are speaking out against the actions of the Israeli government, 
and how could they themselves be anti-Semitic um, when they are the Jewish people that that are are supposedly at risk in this these conversations, and and I think that's a a, a key sticking point with the propaganda. Um, now that we live in such a digitized society, I think that has helped people wake up to what's been going on for um, the last century, um, as the the U.S. and U.K. have created this settler colonial project um, because we can see in real time which country can bomb an entire apartment building full of kids um, and and then try to demonize you know a nine-year-old throwing a rock and and I think it it's really waking people up to the, the way our governments have used these words of of trying to equate uh, Zionism to the Jewish faith trying to equate Zionism to Semitic people and, and really weaponize the language against Palestinian people. Um, I think really the key there is to continue to amplify, especially Jewish voices that are saying that is not who we are, that does not represent our people, our religion. And and that has helped me learn as you know, somebody who grew up as as a very um <clears throat> in a very conservative Christian setting to understand that there's it's not it's not complicated. Jewish people, Muslim people, Arab people, um, Christian people did live together peacefully there before, and that's that's simply what they want. Yeah, and there's also a history to that. Uh, there was no resistance in the United States from 1948 until 67. And then uh, with the 67-68 war, Arab Americans started fighting for civil rights joining the anti-apartheid movement. Uh, Palestinians were coming to the United States to go to university, and suddenly there was a, a Palestinian liberation movement in the United States. So, you know, the state of Israel had to create propaganda to push back because they did not have the moral high ground. And that's a time when a lot of this propaganda started coming out, equating, conflating the state of Israel with a religion with a political philosophy or ideology of Zionism. And it has been highly effective for 50 years. In, in, in fact, it is just now that people are starting to understand and they are no, no longer intimidated by the tropes of anti-Semitism. And what people are saying when they criticize the state of Israel, that we have to hold Israel to the same international standard that we hold all states to. Well, we have um, maybe one minute for each of you to tell us maybe so uh, some something that you've been doing, especially with your union, to build pressure on national leadership and the Biden administration. Yeah, sure. I have really good news that just happened today. Um, before I t say that, I've been holding community with our BIPOC MTA members to talk about the issues and they see their struggles of colonialism and imperialism in the story of Palestine. We've put a lot of pressure on the MTA uh, to sign on the labor peace uh, ceasefire. Today, the MTA board of directors, today is Saturday, the MTA board of directors passed a resolution where, I mean, a new business item that they will call for a permanent ceasefire and put pressure on the president of the National Education Association to pressure Sen uh, President Biden 
to call for a ceasefire and end funding to Israel. And those are the kinds of things that are happening in lots of affiliates across the country. I would say I'm, I'm doing similar work, um, showing uh, local presidents across the nation how to access national leadership, how to contact them um, as they pass resolutions. Um, I also passed some new business at the National Council of Urban Educators Associations, also putting pressure on the national union leadership um, to hold those that we are endorsing and saying are our allies, to hold them accountable to the positions of our membership that genocide and ethnic cleansing are wrong and all people should be liberated. Well, thank you both so much for joining us on KBOO. Um, thank you to Jamie Partridge for helping us convert this to a radio-ready file. Thank you, audience, for tuning in tonight. Thank you, Stephen. This is Rachel Haynes. You've been listening to Labor Radio. Tune in next Monday and every Monday at 6 p.m. to catch another Labor Radio show. This is KBOO Portland. Baby, you understand me now. If sometimes you see that I'm mad, don't you know no one alive can always be an angel? When everything goes wrong, you see some bad. Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon. This is Prison Pipeline. I'm Doug McVeigh. Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system, addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. We seek to promote awareness and activism in order to foster a safe, healthy, and just society. Before we get started, a reminder that KBOO has a $75,000 end-of-year campaign goal. So help us get there by